Today we are traveling back only one decade, 10 years, going all the way back to 2012. Our decade series continues. 2012, no doubt about it, was a year for avenging. It was all about the Avengers, the Avengers at the box office as Marvel punches through to take over Batman as the all-time comic book champ and lead the MCU into a new era of dominance. And it wasn't just at the cinemas. It was in publishing. Avengers, Avengers, Avengers. It was all Avengers all the time. Marvel made sure that this time around, unlike with the X-Men in the year 2000, the 2012, they were going to have as much Avengers material as you could possibly desire to correspond with the Avengers monster summer in 2012 that and so much more on today's observations and welcome everybody to another edition of observations i am your host rob liefeld rob liefeld of the comic book world of the last 36 going on 37 years i write the comics i publish the comics i produce the comics i draw the comics i've been doing this for what feels like my entire life but not quite yet 36 years is a giant chunk, uh, a a huge period representing my youth to my middle age and beyond. And this podcast exists to talk about all of the things in pop culture that jam it up with comic books and superheroes and everything that I have experienced since my youth. We are covering the Decade series. It covers a specific year in, in each decade that absolutely transformed Uh, the culture. And like I said, with pop culture, it it comes down to video games. It comes down to, to, to music. Of course, it comes down to the television show, which has become not just networks, but as you know, streaming does, I mean, I'm watching an all time low of, of, of my entire lifetime of network, anything. It is all about hitting those apps, you know, Hulu, HBO max, Disney plus Paramount plus, uh, some of you have Peacock and, and, and so on and so forth, so forth. And in Disney plus and Netflix, Everything is combined into these crazy streaming apps and that's what really dictates so much of what we consume nowadays and what what we are consuming a whole lot of is superhero and comic book related product. And again, all of that bursts from my youth pulling comic books off the spinner rack. The decade series so far has covered 1986, 1991 and the year 2000. Each of those was a transformative year uh 1986 I, I i jumped on this entire series when stranger things season four aired and it was taking place in march of 1986 at the same time top gun maverick premiered a few weeks back and that is a sequel to the biggest movie from 1986 and now maverick is on its way to being the biggest sequel uh or, or the biggest movie period of this 2022 season. So how do we follow up 1986, 1991 and 2000 with all of their changes, with all of their incredibly impactful uh, music and television and comic books and films, because each one along the way, 1986, again, going back to what we discussed 
in our earlier 1986 uh, episode, we we open with with covering the fact that 1986 had Top Gun, which was the number one movie in May, and then back in September of the same year, reemerged to be number one for the next entire month of September. It was the number one movie. It just showed the staying power and the transformation of that year. Dark Knight was a transformational comic book, maybe one of the most impactful comic books of my life, of my youth, certainly in the history of of, of, of Batman publishing. Transformed the character. Came out in 1986. A, a, the cover to the very first issue sold for $2.4 million just this last weekend. So again, 1986, um, um, Kate Bush and her running up that hill from 1985, crossing over into 1986, which is featured so prominently in Stranger Things Season 4, has jumped back into the top of the charts. So these decade series have tethers and echoes and and, uh, connections to the present day. 1991 was huge in film and in music and in comic books with the form- formation of Image Comics ultimately coming out of the fact that X-Men and X-Force sold five and eight million uh, five and eight million copies respectively of each of their launches. Just phenomenal numbers. T2 and, and Schwarzenegger and James Cameron dominated the box office and tilted filmmaking and, and filmmaking hasn't looked back since. 2000 found Marvel emerging from bankruptcy and an entire new uh, outlook for Marvel Comics at that point. But what really shook the year 2000 was the release of a little film that turned out to be a top 10 movie for the year called X-Men that nobody saw coming. And you go, Life, what are you talking about? X-Men is so popular. Exactly. X-Men was the number one selling comic book all through the 80s and the 90s. But we didn't get a movie of it until 2000 because it was it took that long to convince people that even with the number one rated cartoon show that 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 the x-men comic book spawned that aired on fox on saturday mornings on fox in 1992 93 94 even with that incredible x-men cartoon show uh it took 20 i mean it it was part of the 20-year process of getting somebody to make it and x-men one again was made for a very uh, a practical $65 million because they just weren't certain and they wanted to make sure they were going to get their money back. And as you can tell, anytime there, w- there is a cost analysis or, or, or financial autopsy put on, on a movie, you know, those cost profit analysis are everything to people. Uh, recent movies have launched that, that reportedly cost $200 million and, and they're, they're making a third of that at their opening weekend. And that's just not enough to sustain the profitability. They need a $200 million movie without any additional marketing costs. This is traditional. $200 million, just just budget for making the movie without adding. In most cases, you guys, it's between $100, $120, $130 million in marketing, advertising, because those ads and billboards and streaming uh, 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 audio uh, spots do not just completely, they don't come for free and they don't pay for themselves. They're part of the cost. So then you, you generally tag on. If it's a 200 million, then you got 130. So there's 330. You guys, that means it has to make $660 million at the box office just to break even. So many people just believe that the movie theaters don't get a split. What do you think they are, that they cannot sustain on Coke, Coca-Cola, Mountain Dew, Slurpees, uh, slices of pizza, peanuts and popcorn alone okay they are getting a slice of that dollar 
that the studios have tilted it so that maybe in the first weekend, 60% goes to the studio, 40 goes to the Regal or the AMC or wherever you're, you're seeing your movie house. But, and, we, and we've covered this on other, uh, you know, dedicated film and box office episodes of Rob's of observations. The, the eventually the second weekend, it goes to 50, 50. And then the third weekend, it goes 60, 40 favoring the theater chain that that $10 ticket is split or $12 ticket is split. That's why they love the higher prices, the IMAX, the, 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 uh, 4XD, all these new experiential, uh, ways that you can, you can observe a film, consume it, uh, you know, you know, kind of take it in with, with 3d glasses and shaking chairs and all, all, all manner of different, um, um, applications that, that, that can make the, the, the experience even more immersive. And the ticket prices go up, which is great because you'd rather be taken home 40% in that first weekend of a $14.99 ticket than a $6.99 ticket. And so with the studio, okay? The studio loves that, those those price points as well. But uh, with X-Men in 2000, it made $150 million domestic when that meant something. Because nowadays you go, whoa, it's not a big deal. Even though some of these movies that I'm mentioning with the $200 million budgets are going to be lucky to see that number. And I'm speaking domestically. Domestic is also something something you guys need to like understand. And again, I have been selling uh, movies, been been part of making movies, uh, making entertainment. Um, had an up close, obviously, uh, uh, chair seat at the at the Deadpool films. Got got movie checks instead of comic book checks on top of comic book checks and on, on, on top of, on, on top of toys and merchandising checks. So, so again, I've, I've got a seat up close and personal to this. And I'm going to tell you right now that domestic is where the most money comes from, from, from these studios. All of the terms are put forth within, you know, the, the, the United States of America, the exchange rate, the terms, the leverage that these companies have over these American uh, theater companies and these studios uh, to pay back and forth with each other. It, it's the cleanest of all the accounting. When you get overseas, the terms change. When you get over to China, and we're going to maybe do an entire box office on the smoke and mirrors of the China box office, which gives so many of these films a billion dollar grosses. They add two, sometimes 300 million to the final gross. But last week, Forbes reestablished what I have discussed here before, but it really put it just in the fine print. A lot of the movie theaters, I'm sorry, a lot of the movie studios, the Warner Brothers, the Sonys, the Foxes, the Disneys, uh, the Universals, Lionsgate, the the best deal that they can cut with China is a 22% return on their box office number. And then, as my friends from Fox would tell me, that's if, that's if China ends up cutting you that check, if China actually does cut you that 22%. So if you see, oh man, this movie did $100 million in China, $200 million. Well, the terms of that at best are a $22 million or a 22% cut of that yield that is supposed to go to the theater. And not only will they may never see it, they may never see it. Uh, they, they may actually see it, but within two to three years of a payout because China calls its own shots, but the studios love having that extra extra $100 million, $200 million on the ledger to brag about, even though it's just a paper number, not not a number that is actually going to get deposited into the account of that film. So that's a discussion for another time. Lots uh, to unpack, lots to, 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 to discuss. 
but X-Men in 2000 really gets us to where we need to go today. X-Men 2000 gets us to this point that we are going to arrive today. And if you have even clicked on this podcast, you already know that the year in question is 2012. 2012, 10 years ago, one decade past, okay? That means my my kids were 12 and they were 10 and they were nine. And man, I'm already smiling because those were the funnest ages. But really, 2012 is going to go down without a doubt, easily, after after you um, get this information that I'm sharing with you today. It is going to go out down, uh, down as just the year of the Avengers on every possible way. And we are going to really get into the fact that from the publishing aspect, especially following everything that happened with, uh, with Q and with Jemis, they called them Quemis, uh, taking over Marvel as publisher and as editor-in-chief during that time. So many lessons were learned over the course of that 12 years. Lots of eggs were broken in, in, in the interest of making the per, you know, perfect omelet. And by the time we get to the summer of 2012, by the time we get to the spring of 2012, um, Marvel has just mastered the direct market post-bankruptcy, post-direct you know, market... Um, uh, re- reforming itself because the direct market itself. And when I say the direct market, for those of you who are like, I am listening to this for the, for the first time. And what is he talking about? The direct market are the comic book stores. Uh, what is not a direct market is if you buy a comic book from Walmart, you, they may have gotten it through the direct market at some point, which is the comic book store distribution chain. But the comic book store distribution chain as a whole is referred to as the direct market when it, it, it sells direct to consumers, comic books only, and they are on a non-returnable basis. You cannot, if you bought 10 Batmans and you have eight left over, you cannot send those eight back and get a return. You are keeping those. Or if you have two left or one left, hopefully you sold through all of them and you put in a reorder and you got that reorder, okay? So the bottom line is the direct market speaks to the comic book shop network. And, and, and so these are the numbers that get charted month in, month out and dictate exactly the health of the comic book industry and the comic book publishers in the comic book industry. So the, the, the 2012, the best, the best way to start off every year I'm finding is by sharing with you guys what you were listening to in 2012. Cause now if this show had any sort of budget, I'd, I'd buy the rights to these and, and I, and I'd share these with you. But, but as you know, that, that, that's ridiculously expensive for anyone. If you've ever like seen, uh, I saw the other day, um, uh, they had a guest on and they asked the guest, uh, big celebrity guest, big giant celebrity guest to sing a, a track that they liked as a kid. And they're like, do you even have the budget for this? Can you even afford for me to sing, you know, this song? Because the music companies will immediately attach the, 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 a fee for you. And it's largely going to be outrageous most times, um, a fee to, to have that song. So yeah, I'm just going to read these songs. If I even started saying these songs, I think something weird could happen. Isn't that crazy? So number one, 2012. Do you remember what you were listening to? Do you remember what was popular? Do you remember what was dominating the charts? I'm here to help you. This is why you tune in to Observations during the decade series, right? Because you want to remember that sweet music, those awesome tunes you were jamming to. Okay, Imagine Dragons, okay? Man, this was a huge, huge uh, album, the Night Visions album. And it had that song that was in... Uh, the Wallflower movie, um, Confessions of a Wallflower, I, it had Wallflower in it, but the the uh, 
that that Imagine Dragons tune that year that, that this was a giant uh, album. I remember it was just it was all we were playing spring, you know, spring, summer and fall. Number two, Bruno Mars dominating, asserting his dominance, unorthodox jukebox, massive hits. That was the number two album of 2012. Number three, she has become quite the staple in the music industry, ridiculously influential. Uh, it was fun because I remember this album very distinctly because my daughter, you know, is, is again, nine years old and she's just belting out the lyrics to Taylor Swift's Red album, which we've already lived long enough that I think she, because she's re-recording her albums because she doesn't have the master's uh, recordings, the master recordings. So she, she, she just literally re-recorded this album this last, I think, fall. So Taylor Swift's Red was the number three album in America, in the United States. I don't know about the world. That's a different, you know, chart. These are the chart, the charts that are dictating what was number, the top 10 in the USA in 2012. Number four was Lana Del Rey, Born to Die. Okay. Big album, big breakthrough, uh, super popular. Pink, if you could remember this, Pink, The Truth About Love, she came roaring back, had a huge album. Number five. One Direction, again, if you had a nine-year-old daughter, Taylor Swift and One Direction were blasting, blasting. Uh, if you were doing drop-offs or pickups or parties or any sort of errands with your daughters, One Direction's Take Me Home was the number six album of the year. Amelie, Amelie Sande, our version of the events, an album I have no memory or recollection of, was number seven. Uh, Mumford & Sons with Babel were number eight. Uh, Rihanna's unapologetic Rihanna just dominating music these last 20 years uh, was the number ninth album and number 10 was Justin Bieber's Believe and 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 just so you know Justin Bieber's Believe sold 4 million albums uh, for 4.1 Rihanna 4.3 for number 9 Mumford and Sons were 4.3 slightly higher number 8 the Amelie Sunday was 4.6 million Albums, One Direction, 5.9. I mean, they were kissing 6 million with this thing. Pink, The Truth About Love, 6.2 million. Lana Del Rey, 6.4 million. Taylor Swift, 8.8 million of red. And then there's uh, Bruno Mars with 8.9 million. And of course, Imagine Dragons was 9.1 million with sales of their night vision. So that sets the, the stage of what you were listening to. In 2012, in in the entirety of 2012, that is the music, that is the those are the music musician musicians the 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 pop stars that dominated us. I just I very much uh, all of those acts are still just just whether it's Imagine Dragons, Taylor Swift, Bruno Mars, One Direction. Just I see all of them and hear all of their music like it was yesterday. But what else was going on in the culture? We were building towards the single biggest event. Uh, in, in the cinematic history of Marvel Comics, and it was only technically their fifth film because, of course, people love to not count, you know, uh, the the Incredible Hulk, which came out the same summer as Iron Man, following the amazing success of Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man that was released in May of that year and the $300 million domestic box office and the huge ruckus that it caused was, was, uh, was obviously very difficult for the Incredible Hulk to 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 rise up and to to uh, to match. I remember it was like, and this movie did did really well. The, the 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 Incredible Hulk movie being the number two official movie. And look, if you guys can uh, 
check out in my podcast. This time last year, I think it was July or, or, or August of last year, I did a, um, I think it's called the rise of the D list. And, and the reason I called it that is because wall street called the, the remaining characters that, uh, that Marvel had left in their, in their, uh, in, in, in their, you know, cupboard to make movies off of because Spider-Man, X-Men, Fantastic Four, Daredevil were all taken by Fox or Sony. They, uh, they, uh, uh, only had Cap, Iron Man, Thor, Hulk, and this was called the D-list. Wall Street said, don't invest in them. This is a sell stock, not a buy stock because, and so I did an entire episode on that. And I read out of all the financial papers at the time, because it was, it was so interesting to me. The, the way they got it wrong, the way they called it wrong. As a comic book fan, you're like, these aren't D-list characters. These just aren't characters that have had number one cartoons, you know, like X-Men or Spider-Man. And that's why you're, you know, you're diminishing them so much. But in, in June, tw- June 13th, 2008, hot on the heels, six weeks of Iron Man was the uh, Louis Leterrier, who has been called back into duty to wrap up this giant, Fast and the Furious franchise right now, which which they're adding Brie Larson and Alan Richson, who was Hawk on Hawk and Dove, and he's just fantastic. He blew up on Reacher this last year. Uh, I mean, they've they, they've they've obviously got Charlize Theron coming back. Um, that they, they are just uh, this this last junk Fast and the Furious film is going to be huge. Louis Leterrier, who also uh, did some of the Clash of the Titans movies, he did um, several movies. They they slipped my mind with uh, with with. Uh, uh, Jason Statham, but he directed The Incredible Hulk, starred Edward Norton, and people are quick to dismiss that. But that is the second. I just I've got to get give that a little love. It doesn't get enough love. I think it's a really fun movie, but because it didn't do the phenomenal, oh my gosh, three hundred million, you know, uh, and, and have the giant opening and had and it took a little longer to leg it out. And I mean, honestly, especially like th- th- there's something about that movie that they just they don't embrace. But it's a fun film. I, I highly recommend it. Liv Tyler. Um, and, and, uh, and Ed Norton and super, super fun. And that's the number two movie. Then we come back with Iron Man two, sorry, Avengers was six. Cause I am not counting cap and Thor. That is five, two Iron Man's one Hulk cap and Thor is five. Avengers was the culmination of what they'd been building with since 2008, except obviously we got Mark Ruffalo as Hulk instead. And everybody wanted to see how that was going to work out. How's that going to work out? What's that going to look like? And, uh, so, so, so it was a really interesting, a really fun time as they were building towards this, but there was some skepticism because Thor and Cap didn't do anywhere near the box office that even the Hulk did it. And, and it wasn't touching what you know, Iron Man did. And this is how the movie math was being done at the time. And, and, and it was the movie math that kind of everyone, it seemed logical. It seemed to make sense. Well, okay. So if Iron Man films hover in the $300 million range, and if the Thor movie made 150 million domestic, and if the Cap movie made, you know, 160 domestic, well, then it, it it bears out that if you put all those characters together, if you put them all in one giant adventure, then it's probably gonna make 450. It's gonna make maybe, you know, uh, uh, it's gonna make. It's going to make 500 million if it's lucky. It's going to make 500 million if it's lucky. Come on. Because because Thor and Iron Man aren't bringing as much to the table now. If those movies had had the exact same box office fortunes that Iron Man had. Okay. Now, and, and, and again, when I'm, when I'm talking, like when I say what Iron Man had, 
I am talking about the 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 entire gross, the entire gross uh, of those films. Now, uh, but, but, but I'm looking at it from a, like a domestic, uh, you know, a domestic uh, uh, approach. And at the end of the day, you, you know, nowadays everyone loves, everyone loves to bundle together the top box office. They love to bundle together as often as they can the, the international grosses. But that doesn't always tell tell the whole story. I mean, again, in, in your life, what are you talking about here? I mentioned China earlier. Let's just do this, okay? Venom was semi-lukewarmly received here. It, it, off the top of your head, would you know that Venom did $213 million in the United States? Okay, $213 million. Big number. That's a huge number. Anything that crosses over $200 million uh, in today's market demands like eye-opening success. It succeeded. It connected. It got repeat plays. People liked it. Did you know that worldwide it did eight, $856 million? $856 million. That's a lot of scratch. $856 million is a big, ginormous, ginormous number. So if it did um, domestically 213, we're filling in the rest of that with $642 million from the rest of the world from Switzerland, from, you know, uh, overseas, from, from, from Dubai, from, from England, from Japan. But, but here's, here is the incredible number. Did you know that China gave $270 million to Venom? $270 million is what China, did they love their monsters? Did they find in Venom maybe the successor to Godzilla? We don't know. They love monsters in China, okay? They love monsters in Japan. They love monsters. But for whatever reason, because that, that's what people love monsters. I was told people love monsters in China. They loved, they love Venom giving it, I mean, you guys, they gave it $270 million. They gave, China alone gave more to Venom than the United States gave to Venom. And, and we're talking by like $47 million more. Okay. That, that, that is an, that is an incredible, an incredible, is, is it only 47 million? Um, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a ridiculous numbers. I mean, I mean, <laughs> no, it's like $57 million. I mean, look, bottom line, 269 million and some change. So I'm, it's kissing 270 million and over here in the United States, 213 million. Okay. For a international gross of six hundred and forty-two, you could—I mean, I mean—we are—we are looking at—I mean—that's forty percent of that international number. Seventy-five um, percent of Venom's success is international grosses. Twenty-four percent, point nine, is what the domestic brought in. So again, even going further, did China even give the twenty-two percent? That they were owed, that that Sony was owed the twenty two percent that is generally seen as the best deal China will offer you if they if you are fortunate enough that they play their films your films your films in their theaters with their population burst okay so people love you know Sony doesn't tell you that it did two hundred and thirteen million dollars that's not impressive they they tell you the eight fifty six it's the worldwide number doesn't matter that they didn't get eight hundred and fifty six million dollars it's just this is what the push financially was on this movie. This is what this movie did. This is what this movie earned. Well, in the summer of 2011, as we are building up to the enormous success of the Avengers 2012, but no one knew it's going to be uh, an enormous success as we are building up towards that cap together, 
What do you think Cat made worldwide? Do you know this? Some of you guys are so good with this stuff. Some of you um, men and women are so great with, with understanding these numbers. 370 million worldwide. That is everything that Captain America, the first Avenger, made. They call it the first Avenger because Captain America, America wasn't so beloved. It was still, you know, in, in, the, in the minds of the studios. They, they, they thought, you know, America wasn't very well liked in the 2000s and with Bush and Cheney and it hadn't crawled out from under its, its uh, you know, basically this is what the studios would tell you from its negative perception um, with with ugly Americans, whatever, you know, slander that we were all participating in taking taking on at the time. They called it Captain America, the first Avenger. In some territories, it, it was only called the first Avenger, just so you know, because they didn't want America in the title. Domestically, where it should make more, it made $176 million. Overseas, it made $193 million. Together, it made $370 million. Why am I telling you this? Because it matters in the outlook. As I said, when, when you get to something and you go, oh, okay, so, 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 so Cap was the more important movie. It was the more successful of the two movies that came out in 2011 as we built our way towards the Avengers with 176 million. Um, and, 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 uh, and then you got Thor and Thor basically made the exact same amount of money. Okay. And, uh, and, and so you look at that and, and both of them are, are not doing anywhere near what Iron Man 2 did in 2010, two years earlier. And there was even some thought that Iron Man 2, maybe maybe it was slowing down. Iron Man 2. Think, think about what I'm telling you now when I just told you about Venom. Iron Man 2 worldwide, all total, all in, everything made. The financial push on that was $623 million. Domestically, it did $312 million. Internationally, it did $311. It, it, it had literally similar appeal across the boards. International wasn't giving more to this movie like it did to Captain America. 623 million on Iron Man 2. So the, the Hollywood thinking is you're going to take these three big properties, the Cap films, which both were in the, you know, high 300, low, low 400 grossing, and you're going to combine them with, uh, with, with Iron Man, which is doing six. And so, but domestically, those movies are doing in the 170s and the 300s. So 500 million was seen like as the ceiling. So it was, it was seen as a movie to be reckoned with. And why have I, you know, spent all this time uh, 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 building up to this? Because you guys, as you know, because we were all there, it was 10 years ago this summer. We've already passed the 10-year anniversary of its release. The Avengers movie, as you know, went on to make $1.5 billion. Domestically, it would make $623 million and $895 million. Um, around the world for a combined 1.5 billion, 1.5 billion. It was it was the shot heard around the world. This is why I'm spending so much time on this. This is why 2012 is such a big deal. Because when 2008 happened and the MCU launched and Iron Man took everybody by storm, and domestically it got to 300 million dollars and people were flipping out at like Downey Jr.'s career was back. He was no longer in movie jail. John Favreau, who was a and a director who was definitely on the come, a director that was, you know, somebody that had some heat, but suddenly, boom, is is Mr. Blockbuster, you know, to, to do 319, almost $320 million in 2008, you know, domestically uh, on Iron Man. And this is back when domestic was, was making more for these movies because internationally, $266 million on Iron Man in 2008. So, so the domestic was carrying it. To, Iron Man became this, 
gi ginormous phenomenon. But there were people at Warner Brothers that said, that's not a big deal. We got the sequel to Batman coming. Now you're like, Liefeld, of course, we all know Dark Knight was big. It was. My 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 mother, rest in peace, Patty Liefeld, she went and saw it. I've shared here that she went and saw it because Heath Ledger died. She said, I said, Mom, one Saturday I'm going to recall this. I'm like, wait, you and you and your friends are going to see Dark Knight? Oh, it's that, that movie that poor Heath Ledger passed away. It's his last film. So much of the Heath Ledger is... Um, is, is what is driving the mighty Dark Knight. But in the summer of 2008, when Iron Man came in in the 630s, all, all total, you know, all the numbers added up, and 300 million domestically, Dark Knight dropped a $534 million domestic bomb with an additional 470 internationally for a total of 1,600,000. I mean, uh, that, that, is, that, is, that is ridiculous. One, excuse me, one point. Six billion one hundred and two thousand dollars. That billion number was achieved, and then you're like, "But life health again." Explain this to us. Why is this so important? So now I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go back to the beginning of the Chris Nolan films, and why this is what happened in the summer of 2008 that reset everything. Did you know that Batman Begins numbers box office echoed more Captain America and Thor? It made three hundred and seventy million dollars worldwide. It made two hundred million. 206 million domestic, 166 million internationally. Warner Brothers was like, well, that's a good start for the Nolan films, but they didn't green light Chris Nolan, put Christian Bale in there, give that all the bells and whistles, make sure Liam Neeson is in this movie. Batman Begins, making 373 million, was a little bit of a shocker. The Lord of the Rings movies were making a billion, the Harry Potter movies were making a billion. Did they have a Batman resistance? Did they have did they have a Batman issue on their hands? Well, with the Heath Ledger of it all, the Joker, maybe it's just adding the Joker. Maybe it's Two-Face. Maybe it was all of it. Maybe it was the fact that for two-thirds of The Dark Knight, it is one of the best movies ever made. It is a amazing crime action thriller that had me on the edge of my seats. I, myself, just sidebar, it doesn't matter. It didn't affect it. But what Rob Liefeld thought of Dark Knight was it's two-thirds of an exceptionally well-made movie that... I thought transcended comic books. It was more of a crime thriller than it was a superhero movie. I loved it. I loved all the mob, the gang, the lawyer stuff, the crime stuff, the detective stuff, Commissioner Gordon. Two-Face lost me. I just was not into the whole Two-Face two part of the, the film, but 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 there is that two-thirds right up until the hotel interrogation. The hotel. <laughs> the prison. The prison interrogation. My mind is working in funny ways this morning. The prison interrogation. That movie is a perfect movie for two-thirds of the way for me it loses me around two-face if you disagree obviously you are more than welcome to um not agree with my assessment of that film and it doesn't matter because like we said it made a billion dollars it made 400 million dollars more uh you know six the, all people do is they see the beginning of that number 600 million to to, to to iron man and then it's like oh yeah we've reset the clock warner brothers starting in 2008 believed nothing can touch us Look at the d difference between us and what they are trying to do there at Marvel. And given that Iron Man was one of the more successful movies featuring a Marvel character up there with the Spider-Man and the very best of the X-Men at the time. Now, remember, people may uh, scoff at those Fox X-Men films, but, but remember that X-Men Last Stand was um, the... the, the the first of the X-Men films, the, the one that people think is the worst of the X-Men films, open to the biggest business of the X-Men films. X-Men Last Stand had an opening weekend, okay? 
<laughs> of of a hundred just shy of $103 million, $102,750,000. X-Men Last Stand made 234 domestically, 226 internationally, total of $460 million, better than what you got with Captain America First Avenger, better than what you got with Thor, okay? Um, but those movies were now seen as lesser than and in terms of product and content, given the arrival of the Downey Jr., the Chris Hemsworth, the the Chris Evans version of the Marvel Universe, but would really would putting these book these movies together yield this giant result? the The best case scenario was five hundred million dollars. I knew opening weekend something was up. There's a coffee bean. I go to the coffee bean. It it it, it, it it's my favorite. I I I I, appre- I appreciate so very much. I appreciate. So very much um, the coffee bean over Starbucks. I just like it. it, it all the flavors are just kind of more uh, in line with my tastes. Uh, maybe it's the sugar. Let's be honest. It's definitely the sugar. It's whatever extra sugar they're putting in to, 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 to sweeten my drink. But I was in the coffee bean on the Saturday of when the Avengers was released and uh, of 2012. And, and Marat and I, Marat, who is Marat Michaels, he... Uh, is uh, been my good friend for 30 plus years. He uh, worked alongside me at the Extreme Studios for a better part of a decade. He was there as my assistant, filling in blacks, making um, filling in blacks means filling in black areas with India ink. Um, which obviously, if you've seen a comic book page, there's plenty of shadows and black areas and just black as a background. And he would rule the panel borders. He would make the FedEx runs. Barat was just integral to those early New Mutants X Force days. He was right there alongside of me. Well. He uh, moved out here to Southern California in 2006 from, he was raised here, that's how I met him, but he had moved away to Arizona for a few years, came back from 2006 to 2013, Marat lived back in Southern California. We were just one city away, and every Friday we saw a movie together, every Friday, come what may, no matter what what it was, a martial arts movie, a horror movie, a sci-fi movie, a fantasy movie, because uh, there was one of those each and every week, we would meet up at around 11 a.m., 11 get the first showing of the day and have lunch, chat afterwards, and then go our separate ways. Well, we had already seen Avengers. We saw it on a Friday. I'll get back to that viewing in a minute. But we had seen it at the first showing. It wasn't terribly busy because they were showing it in a lot of theaters. As you guys know, you, you know, but, but nowadays more than ever. I mean, have you seen a movie this summer? Every theater is packed. When I went uh, to North Carolina recently for a comic book store signing, the, 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 the night was kind of... Uh, you know, we'd had dinner. We had all this time on our hands. Um, we were on Southern California time. So we knew that we could catch my son, my, my friend Dave and I, we could catch a late show of Jurassic World Dominion. Because come on, why not? What what else is there to do? I'm, I'm going to sit and watch ESPN in my hotel room. No. So we went and saw the 10, 15 uh, or the 10, no, sorry, the 1030 Jurassic World. And it was packed, packed with little kids, packed with adults, moms, dads, friends, uh, uh, these theaters. Are packed. I, 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 the 3D screening, which I did not want to see, which was happening right at the same time, was also sold out. So, I mean, these movies nowadays are just packed. But Avengers 2012, 10 years ago, the Friday showing, the first showing at the Anaheim Cinema City, Marat and I pulled up, we watched it. We had a good time. I wasn't set to see it again with my family until Sunday evening. And there would be a lesson learned there. You all have an Avengers story. This is mine. In the coffee bean on Saturday morning, as I am waiting in line to get my drink, there is a couple of geriatric people, small, tiny, exactly where I'm headed towards the geriatric lane. But but I would say they were in their late 70s, a sweet old man and a sweet old lady who are walking together. And she says to the man in front of her, 
are we going to make the movie on time? And he says, oh, we better. I don't want to miss this one. I've been waiting a long time to see Cap, Thor, and Iron Man team up. And I went, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. This, this couple, this, th- these senior citizens are going to see the Avengers. Like this movie has a broad, broad reach. And so you got the sweet old couple who finally ended up the register um, and, and, uh, and, and got their, got their coffee and their, their donut, their pastry. And the old lady had then opened, and I'm sorry, I don't know her name. She's just a senior citizen lady. So I don't, old lady just describes what I was seeing in front of me. Silver hair, blousey, you know, they, they, the, the guy at a fisherman's hat. That, these were complete, like out of, out of a, out of a, out of, out of an episode or out of, out of the, the cocoon franchise. Okay. So she had opened the paper to double check the times to assure him that they were going to be on time. They were concerned about seeing this movie because they were clearly getting that, like, I think obviously an early senior rate, whatever. And they turned around and I saw them get in their car and they zipped away. And I figured they're going down the street to cinema city. Coffee, coffee bean is really located just right up Imperial highway from boom cinema city. So I figured that's where they were heading. I remember going, wow, it really stuck with me all day. These old people, these senior citizens, these 70-year-olds are excited. That man, he had been waiting his whole life. And at that point, you know that he's talking about he has been waiting his whole life for his, you know, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Thor, his Stan Lee, Don Heck, Gene Colan, Iron Man, his Joe Simon, Jack Kirby, Captain America, and his Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Avengers comics. Because this guy was old enough to have bought those books off the rack. So I was like, wow, this is cool. This guy's going to, he's going to have a good time. Now let me go back to my screening. I thought for the first third of the Avengers, it was a train wreck. I thought they had actually made the worst movie they've ever made. The entire opera house scene with Loki and him trying to call out the Avengers. And then when the Avengers meet on a stage, like, was it, is it Norway? Is it Switzerland? They're overseas, but it's that dark scene. And they're all three like standing in a different, like, uh, field and there's smoke blowing and it's dark and it looks like it's on a bad Morphin Rangers soundstage when Hemsworth and Iron Man and Cap first face off and, and exchange unpleasantries with each other. That entire kind of opera house scene, the opening with Maria Hill, Nick Fury, none of it was doing anything for me. And I'm like, wow, maybe this is just a complete misfire. I maintain because I have rewatched it many times over that the first act of the Avengers is very, I'll say wobbly, but they get to the helicarrier. The second act begins and the movie takes off. The movie, the pacing changes, the acting changes, the exchanges change. Um, the exchanges change. There, there, there's the best phrase you're going to hear today. Just everything clicks. ScarJo, Thor, Iron Man, Cap, Ruffalo. That assault on the helicarrier, that entire Hulk versus Thor, Hulk chasing uh, 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 Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow, Cap, you know, trying to, to, to uh, attempting to stop the errant rotor blade and save the helicarrier from, I mean, it is gripping. And suddenly it looks like a James Cameron movie. It, it moves like a, like a Steven Spielberg movie. This movie is cooking. And then obviously segueing from there, from gathering them together to the battle of New York. I was on the edge of my seat. The last two thirds, the second act and the third act of that movie just click. And it starts in the second act. Boom. It stops being kind of a weird looking mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie in regards to costuming and lighting. And it just adjusts and it takes off and it's such a good time. And we all know it's a good time. It's such a phenomenal good time. All of the exchanges, Ruffalo, um, 
I had told you guys, I've shared with you guys two years prior as they were about to film this. My good friend Joseph Loeb, also known as Jeff Loeb, he wrote some of your favorite Superman, Batman, you know, X-Men, Hulk comics. He told me, Rob, Avengers is about getting Hulk back up and running in, in, in the licensing world. You'll see. He is one of the key characters in the movie. Getting him and making him mass appeal again is so ridiculously important to Marvel. You'll see. You'll see. And as I watch the movie... And Hulk tosses Loki around like a rag doll. Hulk with that punch that throws Thor off screen on the helicarrier. The humor, Ruffalo falling out of the sky as the Hulk and then being discovered and he's, you know, barely got any clothes on. I mean, everything pertaining to the Hulk is phenomenal in this film. And the Hulk becomes kind of the guy that steals almost every scene he's in. If you've forgotten, go watch it again. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, the Hulk hands were back on the toy shelves. And again, that is what Jeff Loeb said. Oh, Rob, you got to see the sales on those whole cans. I mean, they want those whole cans back in, 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 in rotation. And that comes from, I believe all the way back. It does. I just don't know the exact year. If it's 2003 or 2004 of the Eric Banya Hulk movie, which of course, you know, by now we're getting our third Hulk in Mark Ruffalo having now leapfrogged over Ed Norton, but Hulk was traditionally their number two best-selling international licensed characters. All across the world, people loved Hulk. They needed to get him ramped up, back up there. I'm sure for a brief period, he he punched through their number one character because Hulk is such, just from the way he handles the aliens in the, in, in the Battle of New York City to, again, the ragdolling of, of, of Loki to the sucker punch of Thor. He just steals the movie. He steals the movie, the big laughs, the big fun, but just Hawkeye battling all of the different aliens, um, just all of the teamwork that they showed in that incredible battle in New York City. And then it comes together and it entices audience. It makes over $500 million domestic, which is, whoa! I mean, they are right now, right now today, as I am recording this, making a huge deal of the fact that Tom Cruise's Top Gun is going to soar past $500 million this week domestically. And that is a, that is an unheard of number. That's like in the Avatar Titanic range and the Avengers range and the Avengers punch through. That means people are seeing your movie again and again and again and again and again. And I mentioned on Sunday, I was taking my family. We were going with five other families, all of our kids. We were going to get this giant block, go see the Avengers. Well, we did, we bought the tickets, but someone forgot to tell us how long these lines were all that weekend. And so we pulled up at Sunday. I pulled up at four o'clock to line up for a six o'clock and realized, holy crap, we're screwed. We're going to have the worst seats in the house. Reserved tickets were not a thing in Southern California anywhere at that time. You couldn't get them in any of these cities. They were not available. Buying your specific seats, you just bought a block and then you had to wait outside in those four hour lines, three hour lines. I immediately rallied the troops, called the other family, said, look, I'm going to buy the block for the the show in two hours from now. So we're going to see the eight o'clock show it's summer. Kids are out of school. It wasn't a big deal. and Or or they were headed for out of school. And, and I mean, it was May. Not a whole lot going on. Everyone was down for seeing the later showing. So I got all the tickets, moved my kids and myself to the front of the line for the next showing. And we got great seats. And all the families were excited. And we were just riveted and couldn't believe what a blast Avengers was. But that, like, miscalculation on line times. Again, the world was changing. Holy crap, I can't take these movies for granted. Not even a little. Avengers changed everything. Audience reaction from that old couple in 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 the uh, in the coffee bean to all of the families that were lining up to see this. Avengers was a family film. It was a brand new breakthrough in terms of entertainment. It was 
I believe Disney's first movie they bought the distribution rights gave, I think, $100 million to Paramount so that Paramount wouldn't release it and release it early because when it was made, it was still under the deal that Marvel, the MCU films, independently had made with Paramount in terms of distribution. Hats off to Disney. They absolutely knew what they were doing with that bad boy. So later that summer, as you know, The Dark Knight uh, Rises, the sequel to the incredibly popular Dark Knight was coming. It had Bane, it had Catwoman, I mean, tons of press. This was the competing film for the Avengers, but to anyone at Warner Brothers, it wasn't a competing film. This movie was going to smoke the Avengers. The Avengers wasn't even anywhere close. The Avengers was going to, at best, rally and make fun at $500 million, like total, not just in the United States, just total. The Avengers uh, uh, ended up edging out The Dark Knight Rises. Now, the Dark Knight Rises, I will always wonder. Again, 1.8, billion, eighty-one, uh, $1 billion, just $1 billion, not a $1.1, $1 billion for The Dark Knight Rises. 633 international, 448 domestically. So The Avengers is, is looking, it, Dark Knight Rises is looking up at The Avengers by like $400 million because Avengers is $1.5 billion. I mean, it, it just took off. Now, now the dark Knight rises was obviously marred by, uh, the incredible, incredibly tragic, uh, shooting that occurred the night before in the previews, uh, which was if, 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 uh, memory serves in, in Aurora, Colorado, and that, uh, that creepy guy, uh, with his shocking red hair and his Joker-looking gaze, uh, went up and shot up a theater. So that afternoon, Luke had really been in, my, my, my oldest was really into the Dark Knight and Batman Begins films. He had discovered them on DVD. And he, I remember the, the saddest thing, and it's probably the weirdest, saddest thing about America was back in 2012 on that Friday afternoon when I took my son to see it. He said, Dad, where do, where do we go if, if someone tries to shoot us? And I had to hold back tears. That just choked me down. So I understand that that box office was impacted. Was it impacted to the tune of $400 million? Were, or Sorry, $500 million. It, Dark Knight made $1 billion. Avengers made $1.5 billion. Was Dark Knight Rises impacted by $500 million? No, I don't believe that the shooting was, was that, you know, was an entire blockbuster gross. Because we've said $500 million is a lot, a lot of scratch. Okay, but do I believe it was impacted? I do. But what matters is, at the end of the year, the Avengers were sitting on top. At the end of the summer, Avengers was sitting on top. The story, as you know, the media moves to who is the winner. Whether it's the Super Bowl, the NBA Finals, the World Series, the NHL, uh, you know, the Stanley Cup, everybody immediately pivots to the winner, and the, the loser gets lost to the sands of time. But you're like, Lightfield, Dark Knight made a billion. It did. It did. But, but now the grosses weren't going in Warner's direction, because I'm, I'm telling you in Southern California with friends in the business, the Dark Knight, the Nolan films were just a foregone conclusion. They were the foregone conclusion each and every time that they would be released and that they would dominate and that they would be the number one appeal based on the overwhelming success of Dark Knight, which in their minds just reestablished everything. Dark Knight dominated. Dark Knight made 400 plus million more than Marvel's best, okay? Uh, 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 500 million more than Marvel's best that summer in the summer of 2008. So to have a rematch four years later and it not break their way, especially when they put 
Anne Hathaway in his Catwoman. And they had Tom Hardy as Bane. And they had the biggest um, budget of any of the Batman films. And of course, you've still got this genius, Christopher Nolan, who was, again, remember what he made in between was a movie called Inception that took the world by storm. I mean, one of one of the best movies of the last 20 years. Inception, one of, one of the best movies, I think, of all time. Christopher Nolan was just an absolute just blockbuster filmmaker, just cinematic visionary. So, 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 but now Avengers had the crown by 500 million. They had it and, and you guys, they've run away with it and they have never, ever looked back. They have never, ever looked back from the success. And what changed in the halls of Warner brothers was how do we catch that? There cannot possibly be a world that we are $500 million looking up at Marvel. And, and, and Disney, because again, I've tried to explore, explain to you guys, when Marvel and DC got purchased by Warners and then eventually Disney, you're not in the Marvel and DC wars anymore. You're in the Disney Warner Brothers wars. These are giant, huge, uh, uh, very proud, legendary studios with all manner of fingers in the culture, whether it's television, cartoons, po- uh, uh, theme parks, music divisions. So to be number one, to dominate, and to get that kind of yield now coming in from a property at Disney. Disney bought superheroes, and, and their first distribution you know, success puts them $500 million above Dark Knight Rises. Yes, Dark Knight Rises had the tragedy. I hear you. I get it. It was not a $500 million impact. Dark Knight Rises is still ridiculously successful. You take the Avengers out of the equation, Dark Knight Rises is the number one movie. It is the biggest deal. So I, you know, I get it. I understand. And, and, uh, and, and, and that is not lost on me, but that is not how the business works. The business works on a completely different, different metric. And, and they, everyone rallies around the winner. How did they put this together? And again, in their mind, Robert Downey Jr. is a rehabbed guy who was down on his luck as the 2000s began. He was in um, all manner of different, uh, just trouble with the law, with drugs. In 2008, Iron Man and, and Tropic Thunder back-to-back that summer just exploded him onto the scene. Just made him as as shiny and new and appealing to an all new audience who discovered him as Tony Stark and didn't look back. And then he immediately immersed himself in Sherlock Holmes and he had two franchises. But Hemsworth and ScarJo and and Evans and Ruffalo, they're like, what? These guys, these guys aren't of the same class as a Christian Bale, as an Anne Hathaway, as a Tom Hardy. But now Marvel had the formula. And what I said earlier, starting in, in this in this. Uh, podcast was the comic books were, gonna, were figuring it out too. The comic books were asserting themselves. They were figuring it out. I will dive d- deeper later into this part one, how the comic book started to figure it out and to maximize this huge media success that I don't even think Disney saw coming with the success of Marvel. But the next summer began the second guessing because what happens in 2012 echoes into 2013 and with Man of Steel coming on the way, is it too dark? Is it too violent? Does it have the fun? Can families see it? This is the second guessing that starts to, 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 to go on, especially because we always talk what happens in a transformative year has an echo into the next year. And I've gone on and on and on and on about this Avenger success. But the success was truly felt with the first post Avengers movie. So echoing and carrying what happened in 2012, the summer of 2012, 
what happened that year as Iron Man 3 makes $1.2 billion. Yes, it made $1 billion. Excuse me, $200 million more than Dark Knight Rises one summer previous. Iron Man Iron Man 3 is a polarizing movie because it's more James Bondy with Tony Stark than it is an Iron Man movie. I personally love it. I love Shane Black. I loved all the work that he did uh, writing the Lethal Weapon movies and putting himself uh, on the map. Long Kiss Goodnight. I'm a huge Shane Black fan. Kiss Kiss, you know, uh, 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 bang bang. I was going to say kiss kiss boom boom. But again, that that's that's where Downey Jr. starts to turn the corner, and he teams up with Shane Black. They do Iron Man three. It internationally does eight hundred five million dollars. It domestically does four hundred nine million dollars. It is now in another league. It is not even running with the previous Iron Man films. Iron Man one and two are looking so far up at Iron Man three success one point two billion dollars. Okay, this movie had an opening week of $175 million. Iron Man 3 had an opening week of $175 million. The entire lifespan of a, of a successful film franchise from another studio, whether it's an animated film, a comedy, a, a big sci-fi an, action film, that is now the echo. It is felt immediately, and Warner Brothers is even more freaking out because they have assembled the Dark Knight talent. Nolan's got a producing credit. He's got hands, uh, you know, he's behind the scenes on Man of Steel, and you guys know if you have listened to this podcast or you follow me on social media even a little, Man of Steel is my favorite of the DC movies. I don't want to hear your negativity. I just reject it. I love it. I love Cavill. I love the entire direction. I think it's one of Zack Snyder's best films. I love the score. I love the amazing action. The best superhero action ever put on film, in my opinion, is Man of Steel. That uh, absolute ridiculous battle in the... in 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 the second uh, act that then carries through into the third act with all of the destruction. Uh, it, it, it is my, it is, it, it is paced incredibly well. I love it. I love Russell Crowe. I love all the Kryptonian stuff, all the opening. I am such a man of steel honk. It is one of my favorite movies. It is my favorite DC movie period, full stop end of story. So man of steel opens to 116, 116 million. It just worldwide man of steel does $668 million domestically 290. Okay. Iron Man 3 did $1.2 billion. We are in another world. It happened in 2012. It happened when people like that old couple could not get out to see Avengers fast enough. It happened when I showed up with my family and realized that I did not equate a two hour plus line wait for everybody. And we'd be starting several hundred people back and in the nosebleeds. So I had to then readdress for my family on opening weekend on Sunday evening of the Avengers. Avengers hit like a meteor smashing cinema and and frankly Marvel's never looked back and the movies have never been the same. So while the Avengers 2012 film release drastically altered the the playing field for Disney and and and, and catapulted them literally for the last decade above Warner Brothers and all the other competitive studios. What did Marvel Publishing do that was just the most giant flex, really a master class they put on? Marvel Publishing, uh, seeing the Avengers coming, seeing the potential of this, even if it had been the $500 million, not the $1.5 billion success, Marvel Publishing got their ducks in a row. And in 2012, 10 years ago, it 
literally, when I say masterclass, this is like the finest of the flexes. And, and let me tell you, one year prior to this, DC had relaunched their publishing initiative with with a with an enti- with an event called the 52 52 comics and I have a dedicated DC 52 podcast you have to read it it sorry you have to listen to you have to listen to because it details in depth all of the insanity that went uh into the DC 52 the lack of planning the literally throwing everything against the wall and, and that old saying, you know, and, and, and see what sticks as nothing stuck except for Batman. And they got up to 17, 18 Batman titles, something that is currently now plaguing the company, according to literally every retailer I visit from Southern California to North Carolina to, to Texas to Arizona. No matter where I have traveled, the, the DC books have slipped. And, and when I ask why, why now? They tell me, Rob, they, they have, you know, just an over-reliance on their Batman line. But this all started with the, the DC-52. And you know, 52, the DC-52 was really successful for about two and a half months. Then the wheels started coming off, and it was too many titles, too many titles with um, creative teams that, that, that maybe weren't, weren't the best fits. Um, the selection of the titles weren't exactly inspiring in some, in, in some instances. And, and the support behind some of those titles that needed an extra um, punch wasn't there as the, uh, the the combination of Dan DiDio and Jim Lee at the time, they were the co-publishers, were trying desperately to unseat Marvel. And they did it for two months, for two months in 2011. Marvel reasserted itself. And so, so here's where we know that the 52 wasn't terribly, uh, uh, you know, effective or 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 didn't leave a giant impression and wasn't transformational is Marvel did not attempt to repeat this Marvel did not people were like well is Marvel going to restart their entire line no they did selective relaunches as they've been doing for the beginning of their publishing as they did in the 90s and and in the early 2000s they didn't just knee jerk go oh we got to answer this and you'll see here in 2012 they had a plan and their plan started in April you know a good Six weeks before the Avengers movie was released, they released Avengers versus X-Men. And as we always talk uh, on this show, that the best results come when the best creative teams possible are put together or come on, it's the Avengers. So I'm going to say assembled when the best possible teams are assembled and Avengers versus X-Men weren't a visual, you know, business here. And Olivier Coipel, if you are not familiar with his work, C-O-I-P-E-L, Koipel. Check out anything that he's done on, on social media, his Instagram, his Facebook. He has been crushing it for the last 20 years. He uh, came to notice in, in, in DC Comics over with his Legion work, was quickly scooped up by Marvel where he's been for, for, for much of the last 15 years uh, longer than that, just drawing all manner of beautiful work from Thor to uh to this to this Avengers versus X-Men he did Siege I own uh lots of different Olivier Coipel art he is uh the only thing keeping him from like you know Mount Rushmore is he just doesn't do a lot of work he did a run on Thor he did some again uh, an Avengers crossover called Siege and then really this Avengers versus X-Men Avengers versus X-Men is Marvel and they're um 
their publishing division getting together going, how can we capitalize in the best possible way on this upcoming big, you know, cinematic debut, gathering all of our characters together. Again, a debut that was so electrifying Two senior citizens at Coffee Bean were excited to get to the theater early, not to miss out on this gathering that this late 70 year old man had been waiting his whole life for Cap, Iron Man, Thor. He's going to see them assemble on screen. So this is a giant cultural event. Marvel got, got into it immediately with Avengers versus X-Men, which pitted, surprise, the Avengers versus the X-Men, featuring amazing art by Olivier Coipel, by uh, A- Andy Kubert. Uh, Marvel put their biggest most commercial, most beautiful artists on this. Um, that 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 they, they pitted their biggest creative teams, um, their their biggest super teams, against each other in Avengers versus X Men, and did it in style with beautiful, gorgeous art. I have the hardcover right over here on my shelf. Avengers versus X Men is just stunningly beautiful, and uh, the the <clears throat> the authors of Avengers versus X-Men were uh that there was a, a a scattering of guys who were um assembled there again I'm using the assembled moniker got to keep it real um they had all uh joined together to write these different titles but it gets better it's not just this Avengers versus X-Men event they then had an isolated with like an event within the event where it was X versus A. And yes, that's a separate, a separate miniseries altogether, separate covers, separate artists that went into the, um, you know, the individual matchups, whether it was Cap versus Cyclops or, you know, uh, Wolverine versus Thor. I'm just, you know, making up matchups that may or may not have existed, but that, but, but that, that was the, that was the intent and, and the, uh, the writing talent that they threw on, Avengers versus X, the crossover reflected the artistic interests. It was Jason Aaron, it was Ed Brubaker, it was Hickman, and it was it was uh, Brian Bendis. Again, to go with with the um, the amazing, beautiful, stunning art of Olivier Coipel and uh, and Adam Kubert and and, a, and and Frank Cho along the way. But so they had the pri- the the primary event series which was Avengers X-Men and then within it, the individual matchup. So you get more of these guys all facing off against each other, which was a versus X. These books are ridiculous in, in terms of their success. And they led up to in the summer, Marvel would relaunch and that year two Avengers relaunches in 2012. So when I say that 2012 was the, the year of the Avengers, I am not kidding around Avengers versus X-Men launched to phenomenal success. I mean, we're talking major numbers, major big time, uh, 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 success. And, and, uh, <clears throat> when you look at the, 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 the sheer just, uh, uh, numbers that these books did Avengers versus X launched, uh, at 265,000 copies in an era where that was truly, truly impressive. And it led up to uncanny Avengers. Now uncanny had always been a moniker associated with the X-Men. When I talk about the X-Men I talk about the X-Men of my youth and I talk about the X-Men all the way up to Jim Lee's launching of X-Men, which takes the uncanny off. But Jim Lee came to prominence. And in my opinion, his very best X-Men work, everyone's very best X-Men work 
is on Uncanny. Jim Lee, John Byrne, Mark Silvestri, Paul Smith, Art Adams, Uncanny. Rick Leonardi, Alan Davis, Barry Windsor Smith. Uncanny X-Men was the flagship title. Uncanny is always associated with the X-Men. In this case, they put Uncanny on the Avengers. Ooh, not the Mighty Avengers. You know, not the Super Avengers, not the Dynamic Avengers, the Uncanny Avengers, which had Havoc, Polaris. Again, they put some big talent on it. They, I think John Cassidy was uh, was their, their artist that launched it. And these books, Avengers X-Men, Uncanny Avengers, later in December of, or, or November of 2012, they would launch another Avengers title with Jonathan Hickman. And that would get multiple, um, that would also get multiple uh, uh, cover treatment. Again, Marvel had figured it out. Now, if you don't understand the um, the 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 uh, way that Marvel has been kind of planning things for the last 20 years, they have these retreats. And on these retreats, they bring some of their top um, writers, their top editors, and they discuss what can we maximize next year, what events, what storylines... Which of these will demand the most covers, the most enhancements that we can really get and rally the retailers around? And often, you know, stuff is given thumbs up, thumbs down. Writers come to pitch. I'd like to do this. I think Marvel should do this. Maybe this team up, this team up, this event. And at the end of the day, the marketing team and the executive branch make the decision whether they believe that these proposals can go the distance. And depending on whether they believe they can go the distance or not, they give them the green light. Clearly, for 2012, they had a plan. Avengers X-Men will pit our two most successful super teams of all time against each other in this epic, sprawling, multi-part crossover with all these amazing artists and big-name, you know, noticeable fan-favorite writers. But mo- more importantly, they they really serviced with gorgeous, beautiful art. They uh, They made certain that that was, you know, on deck and that then, again, they would follow up with a, a uncanny Avengers title, which which put some X Men characters on the Avengers we already had, you know Wolverine had been in and out, but now you got Havoc, you got Polaris. I mean, they really are integrating so many more, even some of the B list, B notable, you know, uh, tier X Men characters that are now aligning up alongside Thor and Cap. Uncanny Avengers number one sold three hundred thousand copies. On the heels of Avengers vs. X-Men selling 265,000 copies. And again and again and again, you go down through Avengers. Avengers, the the part of their December relaunch. So by now, you've got three Avengers events. Four, if you count A versus X. A versus X, again, took Gambit, you know, versus Captain America. Or Gambit versus Wonder Man. Again, all the different matchups. It was... Each A versus X had two like 10 to 12 page stories detailing literally just the fights. So it was 100% action. I mean, this 2012 Marvel was speaking fluent fan language. This is the stuff that we wanted, that I wanted, that you wanted, and we showed up for it. So they have Avengers versus X-Men, A versus X, Uncanny Avengers, and Avengers, and all manner of other Avengers comics that I'm just glossing over. Avengers Academy. I mean, you guys, they had their pedal, the metal that to make sure that they weren't making that same decision. Remember in the year 2000, the 2000 decade series that we just did recently, go listen to part one, part two, the 
New publisher was pissed that Marvel Comics did not have more books in place to capitalize on X-Men's success, even though no one thought X-Men was going to be a success. So it was this double-edged sword. The pu- I'm telling you, the publishing division was like, well, this movie with all these people we've never heard of because no one knew who Hugh Jackman was and James Marsden wasn't a blockbuster name. And Patrick Stewart was past his Star Trek prime. That, his Star Trek prime, that was the understanding. That was the kind of the way that people viewed it, not my opinion. That was the way people viewed it. And Sir Ian McKellen wasn't a household name from the Lord of the Rings, the Gandalf performances yet. So the publishing division was like, well, we'll, we'll just do minimum. We'll do a, we'll do a adaptation of the movie and that's it. We won't have a bunch of tie-in material. Or we won't launch a bunch of new uh, X-Men comics that will you know, capitalize on this giant X-Men box office success in the year 2000. That The new publisher, Bill Jemis, was upset over this. Well, we find ourselves now 12 years later and no one is going to miss that opportunity. No one is going to let that train, you know, um, go, go through town uh, with less than as many cars as possible hitched to it. And it sped through. It sped. I mean, it was a you know, bullet train basically of Avengers material with all these different Avengers tie-ins. They were not going to miss that. And they didn't. And again, they've, they've got these huge sales, but here's the killer. Do you know what the number one comic of the entire year was? It was not an Avengers title, no matter what Marvel tried. Uncanny Avengers, Avengers versus X-Men, A versus X, the brand new Jonathan Hickman Avengers, which was part of their Marvel Now initiative that came out. None of those books could compete. <clears throat> And you guys, Batman doesn't even launch and and log in that year till number 17. So let's get back to the 52 part of it. You know, I'll tell you what the top book was in a minute. And it is a phenomenon. And it is, again, part of the shift, part of the whoa factor. Batman came in at number 17 that year. That This is Marvel going, we are going to show the new 52 exactly how little we regard them and how little we care. No, we are not going to restart our universe. We are going to just mash up our successful families. I've said to you many times before, Marvel's advantage in any showdown, and they will tell you they have multiple families, up to six families that they can hit you with. They have the X-Men family. That's an entire family. A book under that umbrella is Wolverine, obviously. It's been Gambit. It's been Cable. They even put Deadpool under there, although for a brief period in the mid-2000s, Deadpool had four comics of his own, so he was, he was his own family. But the X-Men is a family. The Avengers is a family. Underneath the Avengers umbrella is Thor, Cap, Iron Man, all the Avengers-related titles. They then have the Spider-Man family. You know this. Amazing. Peter Parker, Marvel team-up, all the Spider-Man titles. And now, as of now, they have the Venom family within the Spider-Man family that is almost as good as popular a seller with Venom and Carnage and all the Venom tie-ins. Then you've got what they call the Marvel, kind of the Marvel heroes line. So you've got Fantastic Four, you've got the Hulk, these kind of uh, just just the early Stan and Jack stuff that isn't part of the Avengers family. But then you've got the cosmic stuff and they go, our cosmic line at any time can fly in and just grab the gold medals, the Silver Surfer, the Guardians of the Galaxy, the Adam Warlock. Okay, so 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 they have multiple families, and in the 2000s, in the six years, the Ultimate line was doing very well, which we discussed in the 2000, uh, the year 2000 podcast in our decade series. The Ultimates was its own line, this kind of derivative line. So you Marvel has the 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 space family. They have, and that's not even mentioned their licensed line of books. When Star Wars is singing and Conan is singing. I mean, their licensed books just run you over and take the top spots. The Spider-Man family, the Venom family, the X-Men family, the Avengers family, the Marvel heroes family, the 
Marvel Space Galaxy family. Marvel has so many different families that they can unleash at any time. So they can bounce among them. Have an Avengers event. Next month, have an X-Men event. Next month, have a Spider-Man event. Next month, have a Marvel Heroes event. And guess what? Now, you're into a new quarter, okay? So now what are we going to do this quarter? We're going to do some license books. We're going to make our Predator line that we just got the license for. We're going to make that the big deal. We're going to keep pushing Star Wars. Do a a Darth Vader book. Do a Princess Leia book. Do a Luke Skywalker spinoff. Do an Obi-Wan. I mean, Marvel has so many families at any time. DC has the Batman family. It's their it's their go-to. Except it's their go-to each and every month, which means each and every quarter it's Batman, it's Batman, it's Batman, and it's taking its toll. So that's a little opinion <clears throat> that I've built into this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Got a little scratch right now. Uh, trying to work that out in my throat as I speak. The bottom line is uh, Marvel has all these different families they can throw at you, and they combine them. Avengers versus X-Men. Uncanny Avengers. And, and, and again, for the year... Batman doesn't come in until number 17. So what was the number one book? Well, the number one book was a book that was absolutely on fire. I remember being so riveted by the 100th issue of this book because it's the number one book of 2012. So despite all of your box office amazing success and all of the Avengers family and, and all of the ways that Marvel was maximizing their publishing, Image Comics had the number one book of 2012, Walking Dead number 100. And Walking Dead number 100, I, m- I remember reading it at the taco stand and I had been given an advanced copy by my good friend Robert Kirkman and I knew I knew it was coming and it's really interesting the significance of this because I believe Walking Dead 100 re-engaged re-engaged the comic book audience um and 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 sent them into just a frenzy as as Walking Dead 100 is where Negan just goes off and, you know, brutally murders Glenn with his lovely bat Lucille. And it really cemented Negan in 2012 as the most vicious villain, uh, darkest kind of bad guy figure on the comic book scene with his leather jacket, his chains, his uh, very Quentin Tarantino-esque uh, a penchant for 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 dialogue and, and making long pop culture speeches, and when he beat the crap out of Glenn and he killed Glenn, I remember. Oh my gosh! I remember I had one retail friend, and I said, "Do not sleep on this. I just read this. You are going to need as many copies as possible. This is the kind of book that people are going to be talking about." Negan in Walking Dead one hundred just re just reactivated just reactivated. Walking Dead and, and and shot it to the top and it became the buzziest book around for months and months and months to follow. Walking Dead uh, sold out and went back to press and did ultimately 386,000 copies. Kissing 400,000 copies. I mean, that is an incredible, incredible feat. And it uh, it was kind of the the crowning achievement of of what... Mr. Robert Kirkman had set out to achieve. And I mean, it, it, it just, it was, it was phenomenal. I mean, the, 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 the buzz on this book, the, 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 the absolute insanity that surrounded it, 383,000 copies. It was the number one book of the year. And for a reason, it was brutal. It was unapologetic. That is units also, that is units moved. Okay. 
The number one dollar book fell to Marvel, just as an aside, with Amazing Spider-Man, I think it's 700, because because uh, Amazing Spider-Man 700 was an $8 comic, okay? And when you have an $8 comic and you're moving those kind of numbers, you are going to um, generate a whole lot of dollars. So again, um, Amazing, you don't have to do the, the same amount of, 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 uh, of yield in terms of units moved, but, but at a, Amazing Spider-Man at 200,000 units. So ultimately 183,000 less than walking in, but it was a $8 comic, $7.99. Okay. Amazing Spider-Man 700 Marvel. Again, look at that one family with the left punch, one family with the right punch and then back at you. Boom, 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 boom. Marvel has the families. They've always, um, really magnet, you know, um, been able to maximize those families to the, to the, to their core and, and, and through marketing and creative teams and excitement, they just summon the, the, uh, the electricity of the marketplace, but walking dead, 100 Negan killing Glenn was interestingly enough. And in, in a discussion for another time when this exact scene that electrified comic book audiences and made walking dead, the, the buzz of the comic book marketplace of the comic book store. You remember where you were, you were like, Holy crap. Glenn, I mean, Glenn is dead and he was brutally massacred uh, by a baseball bat repeatedly bludgeoned by, by Mr. Super nasty, villain Negan who had already established himself as just a nasty guy and and from that point on you know Robert only enhances Negan but it is funny that when Negan appears on The Walking Dead and now currently you know uh uh Negan is is like the breakout character as as so many of the different actors have either moved on or they have uh you know uh, uh, either either died on the show or left the show to come back. But Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Negan has become the face of the Walking Dead franchise. And when that uh, Negan uh, incident occurred on the television show, which would come several years later, it polarized audiences. It, it, it People did not visually, in a, in, a, in a cinematic form, they did not react the same way we did in comics. Comics, it energized the platform for Walking Dead, it polarized their audience. They were aghast. They were angry. People vowed not to come back to the show. I mean, it was a it was a different tipping point. But in comic books in 2012, because that's the year we're at now, in 2012. And trust me, The Walking Dead saved the AMC network, showed them a, a profitability that they've never seen before. And as I've said before, Robert Kirkman, Mark Miller, the two most important writers of the entire 2000s, the last 20 years between wanted kick-ass uh uh you know all of mark's incredible uh the kingsman successes and then robert kirkman with invincible and watchman these two guys are the visionaries of the 2000s and the numbers they've moved the millions of eyeballs that they've drawn to their work is just uh, like nothing anyone else has done anyone else has achieved in this 2000s but in 2012 despite all of the avenging walking dead in the summer of 2012 comes out on top of 383,000 copies. So wrapping up the publishing part of this, because like I said, all you could see really in, in fr from April on. So, I mean, by the fourth month of 2012, all we're doing is we are Avengers versus X-Men, uncanny Avengers, uh, Avengers now with Jonathan Hickman, um, AVX, the spinoff book. Again, they've collected all of these in, in, in these amazing trade paperbacks, hardcovers. They were the most successful uh, family events, crossovers 
Marvel put on the super flex. Other than The Walking Dead, they dominate the top 10. Other than The Walking Dead, all the, the top 10 comics. Let me read that to you as we wrap this up. The top 10 comics of 2012 uh, is, is just phenomenal. It is Walking Dead number uh, Walking Dead 100 is number one. 353,000 uh, with reorders, the 386,000 that I mentioned. And I plucked that from a separate site, but this in, in initial orders, 353,000. Uncanny Avengers, 300,000. Avengers versus X-Men, 265,000. Number four, Amazing Spider-Man, 200,000 uh, at 799. Avengers X-Men number two was 200,000. Avengers X-Men number uh, six was 197,000. Avengers X-Men number five, came in at number seven at 192,000. When I said Avengers uh, versus X-Men issue six, that actually was the sixth best uh, ranked issue. It was the one that it goes one, two, six, five, three is how they ranked four. And then number 10 was the new, the Jonathan Hickman Avengers at 187,000. So your top 10 is Avengers going from 10 up up to the number one. Avengers, Avengers, X-Men, Avengers, X-Men, Avengers, X-Men, Avengers, X-Men, Avengers, X-Men, Amazing Spider-Man 700, Avengers, X-Men, Uncanny Avengers, Walking Dead. Now here's the here's the interesting part. And this is the thing I had to wrap up. I was, I love that saying when people go, I was today years old. Um, well, it was in the summer of 2012 that I had realized I did not know from 1996 on, I did not know that Avengers number one, Heroes Reborn, was the number one best-selling Avengers title of all time. John Jackson Miller is comic books um, historian, and Comic Cron is a fantastic source for all numbers and decades and eras, and he 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 has recorded as much sales figures as he possibly can. It's a go-to site when you want to grab numbers for any given month or year. <clears throat> He wrote an article on May 2nd, 2012. And again, we can go down and see that the Uncanny Avengers number one was the highest selling um, of the Avengers since this writing a few months after. And it still couldn't dent. He says, by 2003, Avengers sales had approached pre-Heroes Reborn level, rebooted um, as the new Avengers under Brian Michael Bendis with Spider-Man and Wolverine joining the core. Uh, Sales soared again. They estimate that the best-selling New Avengers sold 241,000 when they put Spider-Man and Wolverine in the book with Bendis, with Dave Finch. The the biggest marketing push possible, multiple variants, 241,000 copies. Well, the Heroes Reborn title, that's the direct market, 241,000 copies. The Heroes Reborn title had two outlets. It was sold through Marvel's distribution center. They had bought their own distribution company. Uh, it was called Heroes World. It is recorded that 277,000 copies of Avengers Volume 2 Number 1 uh, had been sold. But he says, uh, with newsstand and subscription numbers, this takes it into the mid 300,000s, mid being 340, 350, 000. So uh, he said, while there are several years over the decades of the Avengers hitting, you know, the low 2000s, this is the only book that had been mid 300,000, taking it into the mid 300,000. Again, mid 300,000s means the middle, that which would be in the 50s. Maybe, maybe it's high 40s. And, uh, so that trumps, and it, and it said, so, 
you know, all total at the time of this writing, 600 monthly issues of the Avengers title have sold between 125 and 135 million copies total. This is a decade ago. This is May 2nd, 2012. Now, since then, as I've shared with you, uh, Marvel, two months later, launched Uncanny Avengers. And that sold 300,000. So without the benefit of subscription and newsstand services at that time, because again, the market wasn't in the same place there was in 1996, John Jackson Miller, Comicron, told Comicron told me on, you know, freaking May, on uh, this article is May 2nd, 2012, that Rob Liefeld's Heroes Reborn, Avengers number one is the best-selling Avengers title of all time. And, and I laughed out loud. Of course, this was kept from me. And when I realized that I had outsold the, uh, you know, <clears throat> the Wolverine Spider-Man effort from, you know, 2004, 2005, and that I would go on to stay the champion in the face of the Uncanny Avengers and all these others. Now, eventually somebody somewhere is going to try and beat that number. Good luck to them. I am happy to have had it for the last 26 years. The best-selling Avengers of all time. Heroes Reborn, Avengers number one. Take that to the bank. Cash that check. It's so funny. I love it. Um, part of the incredible news that I learned in 2012. But that was the year of the Avengers. As we push forward with part two of this amazing uh, look at the year 2012, we will go more into the more movies, the other movies that were made beyond Dark Knight Rises, beyond Avengers, the other comic books, the other impactful decisions, because there were so many of them, especially again, giving over at DC, the wheels were coming off the new 52. And uh, we're going to cover all of that in part two of our decade series covering these transformational years and, and, and honestly, 2012 and what happened with the Avengers at the box office and everything that followed Iron Man number three, one year later in the echo of that making $1.3 billion. You have got to be kidding me. These are the things that happened. Marvel MCU took off, never looked back and put so much distance between itself and its competitors. And we're going to cover more of that in part two. Thank you as always for listening. You guys are so fun. You um, bring nothing but incredible enthusiasm each and every time. I thank you so much for all the love that you guys show me on this podcast. You know, at the end of each and every podcast, I share with you guys the outstanding reviews and um, and and the the uh, the love that you guys have shared with me. And today, I am bringing you from Mike C. And it says M. Cassini. His review, so when you leave a review for this show and you leave five stars or you leave a, a positive write-up as the one I'm going to um, read to you today, I read it at the end of each and every show. We share these reviews that you guys leave for our show on the platform, which helps us stand out. Look, we th- this is a free podcast. There's no advertising. Um, we love sharing it with you, but the ability to be seen and the, the profile of it is pushed by your amazing reviews. I appreciate them so much. That's why I read them each and every show. And here comes this one today from M. Cassini, Mike C. Born in the 80s. He gives us five stars. He says, I love this podcast. I was born in 1981 and without a doubt, the formation of Image Comics shaped my love for comics for 10 years. Rob and the founders are to this day my favorite artists. Some of the implosion of the 90s bubble ruined comics, but I totally disagree having lived through it. Oh, he says, some say the implosion of the 90s bubble ruined comics, but I totally disagree having lived through it. I loved going to the comic shops in the 90s 
at any chance I could get. Comics, cards, toys, I love them all, and I am so glad that I was part of this. To this day, in my home office, I still have the original six launch Image Comics on the wall. Also, one of my favorite all-time comic book memories was walking in and seeing Bloodstrike number one on the table. I remember being hypnotized by the cover and trying to rub the blood, which was the moniker, the advertising point on the cover. Rob, I love this show, your knowledge and your enthusiasm. For those that don't like comics or pop culture, they will never know the joy, but for those that do, your show brings so much enjoyment. Please keep it up. If you are back in the Boston area, I would love to have you sign my Bloodstrike number one. P.S. Please have a Bloodstrike Brigade omnibus reprinted. Would love a nice hardcover with the Blood Brothers storyline. Sincerely, Mike C. Mike, thank you for that. Thank you for all that love. I Look, I showed you, I did a podcast on the favorite eras. And I am telling you, as someone who's been out in the last year in uh, in Florida, in Texas, uh, in, 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 uh, in New York city, in, in up in LA, I have been, did I say Phoenix? Uh, did I say North Carolina? I have been all over this country in the last year. I have been to Abu Dhabi. I have been to Saudi Arabia. I have been outside the country and people, the nineties comics, the prices, the art, the original art is going through the roof. It is, it is the 90s may be the era that ends up being a definitive era in the same way that I believe the bronze era of the 70s is to me and my group. And, and enthusiasm like what you are showing me just really reaffirms everything that I am seeing. 90s comics, 90s artists, 90s titles, 90s events. It's just surging right now with with a, a love. And it's because you guys have grown up and you are remembering what loved, what you loved, what moved you, and you're sharing it with the rest of us. Thank you so very much. And again, I just want to thank everybody who came out to see me uh, in the last few weeks. I went to Houston. I went to San Antonio. I went, I went to Greensboro, North Carolina. I went to Austin and I went to Dallas and I was so just loved meeting the thousands of you that showed up in force and waited. And thank you for your patience and the six hour waits in Houston, the three to four hour waits in San Antonio and Austin and North Carolina. Thank you so much for your love, for your kindness, for showing up. I, I am so happy. I always love to stay longer. When I get to a store, I plan it. I, I, I am there for the duration. Again, I just came from a store that I thought was going to be 90 minutes. It went three out, three and a half hours. Um, we will always go over for the fans. I will change my plans, whatever they are, in order to accommodate you. Thank you all for showing up in full force, all of you. I enjoyed meeting every single thousandth one of you. I appreciate it so much. You guys, on social media, I am all over. I am on Twitter, at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Robert Liefeld is how you reach me on Twitter. I have a blue check that tells you that is really me. That is a legit guy. I love talking to you, your your comments, your mentions, all of the feedback. I love sharing it with you guys. Thank you so much for reaching out and talking to me on that platform on Instagram. I am just at Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I got the blue check. Again, it tells you that that's me. It's not some fake Rob Liefeld, which is have a minor spelling or a hat or a, or a, or an underscore to, 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 to fool you that is going to contact you and ask you for money. The blue check tells you it's really me. I'm legit. I love talking to you guys over there. I read your comments, your DMS, 
all of your shares, your mentions, your tags. Thank you so much. On Facebook, this podcast, Observations with Rob Liefeld, has a dedicated page. Check it out. Like it. Make Leave a comment. I check them all out. I, I update um, regularly on that page. I have a group called Rob Liefeld, an extreme group. It doesn't have Extreme Studios in the title. That's an older group. This group, Rob Liefeld, an extreme group moderated by myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala. We will be the ones that approve your status if you request and be part of the page or the group, Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. Check us out on Facebook. Look us up. Join us. We are sharing all sorts of older artwork, new stuff, previews, stuff you haven't seen. So check us out over there on Facebook. Thank you for hanging with me each and every week. You know that at the end of each show, I implore you to kick back, take a minute in this busy life, whatever your job, whatever your situation. You have to take a minute on your comfy chair, on your beanbag, on your sofa, you know, wherever you chill out, out on the deck, you know, in your den, uh, j- just relax, kick your feet up, watch a great streaming show, a fun movie, read a great comic book, a, a, a book, um, surf the internet, whatever, consume it alongside a big bag of chips that you love, Doritos, baked Lay's, barbecue, you know, sea salt, whatever it is that is your pleasure. Cheetos, Cheeto puffs. Oh my gosh. Don't even get me started. Great candy bars, ice cream, or fun foods, tacos, hamburgers, hot dogs. Just treat yourself. Have a day where you're just chilling and doing what you like, eating what you like. Um, love on your family. I pray that they're loving you back. I am rooting for you. I am hoping that your spiritual, uh, being your emotional being your physical being, and your mental being are in good shape and take good care of those four quadrants. I, I emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and physically just take care of yourself. Um, get the rest and relaxation you need to know when to take a time out for you and get that time and just whew, take that deep breath and readjust. These are crazy times we're living in. I'm rooting for you. I'm pulling for you. Thank you for, um, for sharing, uh, uh, your, 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 your expression of this show with me. Make sure you don't miss out and swing it all all the way back here the next time because I'll be right here and we are going to talk again real soon.